Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. China has recently announced that it is going to relax its restrictive reproductive policy in favor of trying to promote population growth. What does this mean for China and the world? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. To discuss demography and population policy in China and around the world, we're very fortunate to have with us today Wang Feng, uh, my old colleague, as professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine, and an adjunct professor of sociology and demography at Fudan University in Shanghai, China, one of China's leading universities. He has done extensive research on global social and demographic change, comparative population and social history, and social inequality, uh, all with a focus on China. He's the author of many books and articles in a variety of leading scholarly journals. He served on expert panels for the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, and as a senior fellow and the director of the Brookings Tsinghua Center for Public Policy. His work and views have appeared in media outlets, including the New York Times, in fact, one op-ed today in today's New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Economist, and many others. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Wang Feng. I'm delighted to be here, John, uh, to be uh, interviewed for this topic. Well, it's great to be able to tap someone with your expertise um, I mean, the main uh, impetus for you know my asking you to do this is, of course, the recent announcement uh, in uh, the change in population policy in China, and that and that families are now going to have be able to have three children instead of only one. Uh, you have published, as I mentioned before, you've published just today uh, a, an op-ed in the New York Times that addresses this policy. Maybe you could just tell our, our listeners, you know, what exactly do you say? in that uh, op-ed, and what do you think is the significance of this new policy? Uh, Well, um, what we're seeing in China today uh, is uh, in part of uh, the, really the global change uh, in demographics in the last half century or so, but with a, a special case as we're seeing in China. And I think most people know for 35 years since 
2015, uh, China implemented the most restrictive birth control policy uh, in the entire world uh, with a requirement for the majority of the families to have only one child. And um, so that policy was lifted in 2015, six years earlier. And what has happened after lifting that extreme policy uh, has been that uh, there's no, uh, not only no population or baby boom, but a continued uh, downward spiral in fertility level. And uh, the latest Chinese census last year uh, only confirmed these uh, abysmal demographic uh, numbers. And so the leaders had to do something. And instead of just eliminating birth control policies once and for all, that's what people would expect. Uh, they turned the knob uh, loosen the knob a little bit by one notch uh, for allowing people to have uh, three uh, births. So that is the uh, latest um, move for uh, China. So the clearly, uh, I think uh, China, the leaders as the public are fully aware of this seemingly irreversible trend of fertility decline and soon a population decline. But but you don't seem to think in the op-ed that, that it's going to actually make very much difference. And I think you were hinting at these broader uh, sort of implications in your earlier remarks about how what we're seeing in China is really kind of an example of broader changes demographically around the world. Uh, and I think what I, I'm intuiting here, but I think what you were implying was that basically what's going on in China is part of a broader worldwide decline of fertility rates, basically, uh, other than in Africa. Uh, so maybe you could talk about, you know, those broad, that broader context that you were hinting at, I think, before. Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> For uh, you and me and uh, most people alive today, uh, we're really living in a what are called a watershed moment uh, in the world history uh, marked by two transitions. One is a unprecedented population explosion, largely in the second half of the 20th century. And now we're seeing, I think, for a lot of people alive in their lifetime, will uh, actually see the beginning of a population decline. Now, this is not a small deal between the mid 19, uh, 20th century, 1950, and the beginning of this century, in 60 years, uh, the world population tripled from slightly over 2 billion to more than 7 billion. So that has never happened. I mean, that had tremendous impact on everything in this world. And uh, at the end, uh, at the late 20th century, the world population was growing at 2% per year. And at that rate, uh, the size of the population doubles in every 35 years or so. So had the world population continued to grow at that rate today, uh, we're going to see by 2050, the world population would not be 7.5 billion, but it would be 
15 billion. Imagine that in 30 years. But luckily, that has not happened. And uh, the growth rate since the late, uh, well, 1960s, 70s, started to drop worldwide. And now it's less than half of the level it was 50 years ago. And uh, by the estimations of the United States, I mean, not the United States, United Nations, um, by all likelihood, the growth rate will drop to zero uh, by the middle of the century. And with a population peaking probably around 9 billion or slightly over, and uh, half of the world countries of the population are living in countries where fertility is what known to be below the replacement. So we're seeing population decline start had already started in Japan, Russia, Germany, uh, South Korea, and China within the next five years. So being the largest country in the world, China. And uh, so this is a big deal. So we are seeing the world is turning into population decline in many of the countries. It is a remarkable transformation. I mean, uh, not too long ago, a book was written about uh, a term that I think is more widely used called the Great Acceleration, you know, referring to the processes that you were describing in the mid, uh, mid-20th century and the massive upsurge of population growth and all the attendant, uh, you know, consequences of that massive population growth, you know, including many that have to do with uh, the environmental problems that we now face. Um, And so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the factors that led to that great acceleration on the one hand, and, you know, that are now fueling what we might perhaps call the great deceleration, at least on the population side, but if, you know, will have similar kinds of consequences, presumably, as the great acceleration had on the use of resources above all. Uh, You know, this is indeed quite uh, interesting. Uh, I would say 50 years ago or 40 years ago, when China implemented the one-child policy, the view was that population growth was a burden. Uh, But if we look at the last 50 years, uh, the world has had the fastest and the longest sustained economic growth and technological innovation and measured by per capita, uh, on a per capita basis, uh, standard living increased uh, worldwide. Of course, this is not due to population growth, uh, but it has shown that the growth has not uh, brought the end of the world. So to flip that around, uh, one would say, uh, well, with the pending population aging and the decline, uh, would we lose that that, uh, force? I mean, from a very simplistic uh, capitalist point of view, uh, the more people the better because uh, your uh, uh, labor is getting cheaper, your uh, consumer, the size, is, uh, is increasing. So if you're producing the same thing and with no change, so every year you're going to be able to sell more. But of course, the reality is much more complex than that. Uh, people would need to have jobs, need to have income, need to have uh, education in order to be able to buy your stuff. So it's, uh, I would say it's a uh, um, 
the world actually, in a way, uh, has survived the population bomb, but we're entering into another uh, unknown uh, territory. So um, a lot of this had to do with uh, economic growth, right, and and prosperity, and you know uh, it has to do with the transformation of of the world, um, uh, of much of the world anyway, in, in sort of economic terms. Uh, and I assume that's a big part of what's happening in China, and the, you know a major reason, um, aside from you know female specific reasons such as the ones you point to in the op ed. Uh, regarding access to education and employment, and and but these basically all end up being factors that uh, lead to economic independence of women, right? So maybe you could talk about how that fits into the larger uh, global picture. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> uh, I think what China has happened, uh, what what has happened in China, this uh, spectacular economic boom uh, in the last forty years. Um, is outcome of uh, many historical opportunities, and uh, one of them was the uh, this change in population, what we call the demographic dividend. That is, during the process of fertility decline, you have on the one hand a smaller number of children to support, and uh, at the same time, the population was not. Aged, so you don't have many elderly. Then you have a in the population age structure, you have a lot of young people who potentially uh, could be a driver of economic growth. But that requires also institutional opportunities. This the context, and China happened to have that uh, both domestically with its uh, economic reforms and globally with the demand. Uh, the globalization wave, the demand for cheap goods. And um, so combined, um, these factors really, uh, including the demographic factor, really caused the greatest um, economic boom we have seen in uh, centuries. So that really changed uh, the face of the world. Now, uh, given that China is the largest population in the world, and given how fast uh, it's... um, Fertility has declined, and given how many families now have only one child, uh, so China is uh, at a point uh, that uh, it needs to pay back the uh, the mortgages in a way uh, the leadership took forty years ago uh, on the Chinese families. Right. So, how do you see that going forward in China? I mean. I think a lot of people have been concerned about the factors that you've talked about. That is, eventually, you know, uh, factors that uh, flowing from the one-child policy, right? Eventual uh, decline of population, eventual aging of the population structure, etc. Um, you know, how is China going to? I mean, you mentioned that there's been population decline in Japan, which I think is, and the aging, of course, the aging phenomenon where people are wondering who's going to look after all these old people because there are very few young people who could do it. Um, And so, um, you know, how is China going to, I mean, China, as you say, is the world's biggest country, or at least it's close to it with India. Um, And how is China going to address these problems? Uh, Well, that is going to be a uh, tremendous uh, challenge 
and is a challenge that has been under appreciated not within China, uh, but I think overseas. Uh, a lot of people are uh, sensing the quote unquote the threat of uh, the rise of China. Uh, but in the coming decades, um, for uh, the leaders in China, for the society, uh, internal challenges are going to be the the most important and the most demanding. And uh, everything is going to be driven by uh, what do we see, the demographic change. And um, uh, well, in the short run, psychologically, I think China is, I, I hope, uh, it's getting ready uh, to prepare to be no longer the largest population in the world. And that will happen uh, within the next five years. So China is going to give that up for to India. And uh, it could be national pride. Um, we're not sure. But um, uh, the next thing that's going to be more concerning is the onset of population decline. And that's very likely to begin also within the next five years. And it's uh, once it starts, uh, it's going to uh, accelerate and it's going to continue for uh, at least to the end of this century uh, because um, China actually has had a fertility level that's below the level to replace the population for nearly 30 years. So a momentum is already set in place. And um, so you can to see um, the proportion of the elderly to increase to 30%. And that is going to require um, a lot of resources. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the economy. I think there are a lot of ways to adapt. The society has ways to adapt. But uh, given the political regime, the system in China, uh, this is going to be particularly challenging as the government rests its legitimacy on what it could provide to the population. So we're talking about health care needs, and uh, we're talking about the pension, and, uh, and uh, we're talking about the fertility that's not going to go up, and the people are going to turn around and to blame the government for the high housing cost for the uh, the slowing down in the income uh, increase, which is bound to happen, and for uh, the uh, the lack of childcare facilities, and you can name it. So all those things would impose uh, tremendous political, not economic necessarily, uh, pressure for the uh, the Chinese uh, leadership. So uh, uh, when we look into the future, look at the world, um, and uh, we're going to see a China that's going to be uh, quite different from the last 40 years. Uh, we need to remember China is not only aging, uh, but it has over 100 million household families with only a one child. Now, uh, China has not seen, we have not seen the full consequences of the one-child policy because uh, the uh, the parents of the only children generation are still the young old, so in their 60s. So wait until they are 80s. And uh, so what's going to happen to these parents? And when they need 
emotional support. They need someone to to arrange things for them, not just to provide economic support. And what's going to happen to uh, the, the the generation of only children when they have no siblings to even to share their uh, emotions? So uh, China will continue to pay for the cost of this uh, ill-conceived uh, policy. Right. Um, but it's not just a policy. And I mean, in other words, you started out by mentioning that uh, these kind of phenomena were taking place in, in Germany, in Japan, in Italy, which, uh, as you know, I have a special interest in. Um, and, uh, you know, there are lots of reports about houses being given away for free in southern Italy and Sicily because these popul- these villages are depopulated. Uh, as long as you'll come and, you know, rebuild the structure, it's yours to, to have and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, it really does seem to be a kind of global phenomenon. I mean, not everywhere. Uh, you know, again, I mean, we should talk about what's happening in Africa, which still has the world's highest f- fertility rates. And uh, the processes that we're, we're talking about uh, have not begun, have not entirely taken hold there. They've taken hold in some places, but not uh, universally. And so... I mean, this process of sort of population decline, I mean, you've, you've described a very negative set of outcomes, which are certainly, you know, predictable. Uh, but I'm also thinking about, you know, what happened in Europe after the Black Death. Um, the fact that, you know, all accounts suggest that uh, raises, uh, wages rose for workers simply because of the decline of their availability, shall we say. I mean, the massive die-off that was caused by the bubonic plague. Um, and, you know, so it will, this, shall we call it the great deceleration, will have, you know, very negative consequences, let's say, in the pension realm or in the realm of, you know, looking after elderly people, but they'll also have certain positive consequences as well. Um, so I wonder what you would say about that. Well, uh, again, I think uh, as uh, scholars, uh, including especially those who engage in population studies, uh, we got all the basic questions wrong. Uh, first, when population was growing, uh, people were so scared to think that uh, that was going to process, that was going to continue forever. Uh, that's why, you know, all these scares of uh, the Barthusian scares uh, were uh, so prevalent. And that certainly influenced the, uh, uh, the launch of China's one-child policy. And so it turns out that uh, the growth was not going to be forever. And it was a temporary process due to largely not increasing fertility, but the decline in mortality. Uh, so that's why you had so many more people survived. And then very quickly, um, and with the assistance of uh, government uh, family planning programs, not the kind of Chinese uh, uh, policy, um, fertility started to decline. And um, so population growth, as we said earlier, um, has changed direction. And so we got that wrong. And then we got uh, uh, the second question wrong, that was population growth was going to doom uh, the increase in well-being, which was not the case, right? And then the third one, we got it wrong, was that people were having fewer children because of government 
restrictions of birth control programs like the ones in China. And we know after uh, lifting the one-child policy, or even before the lifting the one-child policy, that uh, people were adjusting uh, their behavior um, regardless of the policy. And um, so you're right. Uh, historically, uh, we saw you know, what happened after the Black Death, and there was much study about that. But there are two differences here. Uh, one is that we uh, realized that the pandemic, uh, that pandemic lasting a couple of centuries, uh, devastated the whole world. Uh, that was, uh, in a way, a, uh, a, a interruption, a, a break uh, in history. And unlike what we're seeing now, uh, it's a continued trend. It's not something that you can rebound quickly at least from what we know, to raise fertility. And the second, uh, also uh, remember, John, uh, even that, uh, I won't say conjecture, but even that historical uh, effect, uh, the ones you talked about, it actually took uh, decades or even longer than decades. So I think for someone who's studying history, uh, you look back and say, oh, that's only a small segment of history. But uh, in terms of human lives, that is uh, one or multiple uh, human lifespans. So uh, whether um, the people who are living now or the next generation uh, would feel the same way about this shift, this depopulation decline. Um, but I don't want to be uh, pessimistic because uh, just like the world uh, adapted to this extremely rapid population growth, the world just got so crowded within 50 years. Uh, and I, I trust uh, human beings would have a way to adapt uh, a world that's getting uh, older and older and uh, population is getting smaller, smaller. So we could e envision uh, a life where you just walk out the street, uh, two out of every five people are uh, in their 70s, 80s, or even older. And some of them are still look very athletic, very young, very strong like you right now. And uh, then you have uh, much fewer people who would be in schools, who would be working, but there, it doesn't mean that the standard of living would necessarily uh, be lower. And the, the world is already producing more than enough for everybody. So it's really a distribution issue, right? So um, we don't know what's going to happen uh, 50 years or 100 years from now. And uh, But we do know, I think, there are ways that uh, people can adapt. Uh, the redistribution issue is a really interesting one. Um, I mean, I think that part of the reason that you've heard, uh, you know, comments about negative comments from young people about boomers is that, you know, they have a lot of the resources <laughs> and, you know, younger people, uh, certainly in places like France, I mean, it's partially a product of their laws, but, uh, Younger people in France, let's say, have a harder time, you know, getting a footing in the employment system. 
Um, and I think this anti-boomer sort of animus is part of this. I mean, you know, I'd be interested to hear you say a little bit more about how you see this redistribution or distribution question in a world that consists, you know, much more proportionately, uh, much more of older people who, you know, presumably have, you know, exited the employment system and are living off of whatever kinds of accumulated assets, whether public or private, there may be. I mean, you are in California. You know that the California pension system faces major challenges. Uh, and that's true in lots and lots of places. So uh, where, where they just, you know, they just cannot meet their pension obligations. I mean, how do you see that working out? Well, this is, again, uh, one of the other uh, great ironies of, uh, of, of history. And um, um, the large cohorts born uh, in the West after uh, the World War II, the baby boomers, um, one would think that because of large size, they would have a harder time to find jobs and they would have a lower standard of living. But to the contrary, uh, they rode the wave of the greatest economic boom, the Second World War, uh, post-war economic boom. And uh, as a generation, uh, they are uh, <clears throat> a wealthy generation. They have uh, you know, there are a lot of stats, uh, data showing how uh, the young people now, compared with their parents, uh, how much worse off at the same um, life uh, stage. And then you look at other countries, Japan, South Korea, uh, China. Again, it's the same thing. It's this one generation, uh, like my generation, uh, benefited, or my parents' generation in China, they benefited from this post-war, much later, economic boom, specifically is a property boom. That is when the land, the, house, uh, the real estate, uh, started from worth nothing to exorbitant uh, uh, prices. So these people have a lot of wealth in their hands. So uh, perhaps uh, if we go back to the Black Death, uh, that is, uh, but you can't use pandemic, um, not like COVID-19. We can't say this is the design of God. So when these older people die off and some of the wealth uh, would be uh, transferred to or be used by the next generation. But um, as you know, um, distribution is not only intergenerational, it's also more important, it's intragenerational. So I think policies would be quite important to think about this in intergenerational inequality that is the wealthier boomers are able to pass down their uh, wealth to their children while others will not be able to have this. So uh, I think in the next 30 years or so, the world actually faces a, a major uh, uh, intergenerational and intergenerational wealth and income redistribution uh, challenge. And you know there have been so much studies on inequality. A couple of years ago, this was on the uh, headline. I think it's going to come back again. Uh, the world, again, does not lack uh, enough resources. It's just we have such an unequal distribution. Right. 
I mean, um, I hadn't planned to ask really a question like this, but, you know, much of what you say uh, really reflects in a way of uh, the fact that we don't maybe maybe don't spend enough time paying attention to these demographic sorts of questions and issues. And, uh, you know, an op-ed such as yours in the New York Times today is a relatively rare event and, you know, obviously has something to do with the perception of China as a challenger to the United States for global hegemony and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, your piece uh, sort of makes the point, among other points, one of the points it seems to me to make is that, uh, demographic outcomes are the product both of policies and of private, you know, personal decision making that in a certain sense is beyond the reach of policy making. Um, but those are things that we need to understand in order to understand the, de- the dynamics of demographic change. Uh, and I was only, unlike you, I was only smart enough to figure out that, you know, demography was important, you know, well into my career, really. Uh, you know, I was writing a book, as you know, about the history of passports. And I had a kind of late in life mentor and very wise guy named, not wise guy, but a very wise scholar named Aristide Zolberg, who impressed upon me the importance of understanding demo- the dynamics of demography. Um, so is that something we, you know, spend enough time paying attention to? Do we train enough people who are paying attention to these kinds of questions? Uh, I wish uh, the discipline could be wider, could be more interdisciplinary. There are more uh, uh, scholars like yourself. Uh, you know, your passport book was 30 years ago. That's uh, way ahead of uh, the time of, you know, look at immigration, look at Again, um, the world is, as a whole, it's slowing down in its population growth and it's approaching in the next 30 years to zero population growth and then starting decline. But uh, in terms of uh, different regions, uh, it's, it's unbalanced. You're going to have pretty serious uh, decline in certain parts of the world and then you have a continued growth uh, in other parts, uh, for instance, in Africa, uh, you you have a need for uh, labor and uh, for people, and then uh, you have other countries. They have the need to, uh, well, young people want to get out to find jobs, but that creates what I think the world has been already seen in the last couple of decades after you wrote your book on the passports. And it's uh, the, 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 all the political issues uh, associated with immigration, right? So the demographic imbalances are driving uh, these uh, immigration uh, waves in different countries. But then you have uh, the rise of, you know, uh, anti-immigration and uh, uh, extreme right and uh, you name it. Right, it's all associated with this, uh, you know, uh, uh, exphobic uh, mentality. So, um, indeed, I think uh, when we look uh, down the road, um, what we're seeing today in China, uh, it's only part of a global trend, and what we're seeing globally is with this uneven, uh, unbalanced demographic change. Uh, it's uh, going to be a a world uh, where it's no longer uh, the concern is on the growth of 
population in some developing countries, like uh, several year, uh, decades ago, the growth about China. People are very concerned about growth in China, in Asia. Uh, but it's going to be the concern of uh, of this new uh, unbalanced uh, demographic uh, landscape um, and how that's going to uh, change the world. Right. So I, uh, you've mentioned Africa a couple of times. So I want to ask you, I know it's not necessarily at the center of your research, but uh, I'm sure you know a lot more about it than most of us. So, uh, you know, I can remember reading a book by Paul Kennedy 20 years ago. I'm not sure. Maybe it's 30 years ago now uh, called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. I've forgotten the title exactly. It's exactly right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he talks about Africa as a, a chapter, I think, on Africa in which he refers to it as the third world's third world, which is to say, you know, this is a place that's really, you know, beset by poverty and prob- other problems. That's not true of Africa really anymore. I mean, it's true of parts of Africa, of course, but there, you know, have been major improvements in the well-being of many of these societies. And uh, you know, improvements in life expectancy, in economic, uh, in wages and uh, wealth and uh, in, um, you know, sort of the ways in which people there get sick and die. That is, it used to be primarily contagious diseases of the kind we're facing now uh, and has now increasingly become, you know, the chronic diseases that also kill people like us in the wealthier societies. So it's not the Africa that... Uh, Paul Kennedy was talking about, it seems to me. And um, yet it still has the highest fertility rates in the world. I mean, as a continent, which, you know, I hasten to add is very diverse and complicated. So I wonder, you know, how you would sort of describe the Africa that's come into being that I've just tried briefly to describe. uh, And, you know, in what ways it's changed since Paul Kennedy wrote that book. Oh, a tremendous uh, changes. Uh, we have to understand, I think now uh, international donors and also uh, uh, organizations uh, have uh, now have a better understanding of uh, population growth. That is, uh, you can't just go after how many children people, uh, how many birth people have. You first have to deal with survival, with uh, infant, child, and maternal health. And uh, just like what we've seen in China and elsewhere, fertility was high in the past because infant and child survival uh, was very low. Uh, you, you were talking about infant mortality of uh, 250 per thousand. That's 25% of the birth die within the first year. Now, uh, that was the case uh, 30 years ago. And in the majority of countries in Africa now, um, infant child mortality has dropped to below 10% and uh, so, uh, or to 15%. And that's very important because if we know what happened elsewhere is that when once you improve uh, the health uh, of uh, infant and child and the mothers, and that's when people will start to rearrange their lives to have fewer birth. So in many countries, like in South Africa and in Northern North uh, African countries, fertility dropped to below three now. So it's just a matter of time. And I think within the next 20, 30 years, we're going to see an entirely different Africa. Uh, there will still be countries 
that will be very poor. Health level will be very low. But in the last 30 years, health, especially infant and infant and child health, has improved tremendously. So that is setting a stage for fertility decline in those countries if what we've seen in the rest of the world so far uh, bears out. So um, um, we shouldn't be just simplistically uh, negative or pessimistic about the continent of Africa. A lot has changed, and uh, we are seeing a new beginning uh, there as well, uh, thanks to uh, this great global efforts to provide uh, support to improve health. Right, indeed, I think that's been an important source of improvement. Of course, the strategic, uh, the sustainable development goals of the UN, I think, also have been, you know, major kind of s- sources of incentives um, for some of these achievements. And you know, the shift from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals because world poverty was reduced more quickly than anybody really expected that to happen. I mean, all those are very good things. Uh, But I suppose one thing one might add to that is that the pandemic, our pandemic, has, you know, short-circuited some of those developments and undermined them in various parts of the world. And so as we wrap up, I think maybe uh, the last question I'd like to ask you is about the pandemic and its effects as you see it, you know, on the United States, perhaps, and around the world. Um, You know, there had been, as my colleague Branko Milanovic has pointed out in some of his books, uh, there has been this kind of relative equalization of, uh, you know, well-being and wealth across across countries, uh, not so much within them, of course, but across countries. And uh, you know, the pandemic seems likely to uh, upset, I think, some of those trends. And I wonder, you know, how you see the pandemic affecting. Uh, global demography. I mean, it seems like it will have very limited, very small, if any, effects really on China, given the size of the population and what I know to be the, uh, you know, the death rates and that sort of thing. Whereas in the United States, it's a very different story, but it's still not the story of, let's say, 1918, where population was a quarter of the size it is now and death deaths were you know, more than their official, at the official count, uh, you know, that we have the United States today of around 600,000, it was even higher in 1918. So I wonder how you could, how you would, you know, sort of contextualize the effects of the pandemic on global population and well-being um, as we seem to exit it, you know, here in the United States, but not so much in India or Africa. Um. <clears throat> Uh, you know, uh, as uh, someone who studies demography uh, and pandemic um, is a major uh, interest of, uh, of the demographic process. And the world has gotten to be so uh, uh, large in terms of the population. Uh, first and foremost was the, the receding of these pandemics in the past. So the last one we had was uh, a century ago. Uh, but given all uh, what do we know now and given the changes in the world, there is no, the viruses do not have a time clock. Uh, 
Uh, it's not to say these kind of viruses would come back in 100 years. Uh, we don't know when the next one's going to come. So demographically, I think we are uh, in a way lucky so far uh, that the, as you said, the desktop um, uh, is not uh, as high as uh, the la last global uh, influenza 100 years ago. And uh, I think we lucked out uh, in uh, many ways uh, in the United States. Uh, most recently, it's because of science, right? The MRI uh, vaccine, this is something that had never happened before, and we're really lucky. Uh, the, uh, in the previous uh, viruses, uh, it would take years or decades to get a vaccine out, but this time is fast. But we're not finished yet. And... Um, for a while, we thought India was safe. And then look what just happened to India. We don't really know what's going to happen to Africa. And uh, so I, I don't think the story is over. So we're still waiting, uh, hopefully, uh, to see that um, uh, Africa would not become the next India. That's a large continent. And with very primitive, uh, poor, infrastructure for uh, health and for immunization. And I think what we've learned so far, uh, it's less about uh, pandemics, about uh, technology, but more about, again, getting back to this topic that's dear to our hearts uh, about politics and inequality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so we are not putting on a period for this unusually long uh, segment of, uh, of history that, you know, we more than a year uh, living under this uh, uh, pandemic. And also, as you know, uh, death rate could be much higher. Look at what happened last year in the United States. Look at what just happened in India. So uh, there are a lot of measures that allowed us to uh, to uh, uh, suppress the severity of uh, the pandemic. Um, but what we've seen is, again, the same themes of inequality and the political stupidity, um, both in this country and in other uh, countries as well. Look at Brazil. Look at India. Look at China. China um, relied on the method uh, that was uh, used five centuries ago which is by quarantine, by isolation, through its political uh, organizations. Uh, but then now it's because of the overconfidence in the administrative measure. This is a primitive measure, just made with the modern efficiency. Uh, China has been very slow uh, until very recently uh, in vaccination. And there's no reason, I don't understand why, the vaccines developed by the firms outside of China could not be used to produce vaccines for the whole world, including for uh, people in China. But the Chinese would, for political reasons, would say, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to show the, uh, the advantage of our system. So our vaccine is uh, more uh, effective and then any others and we can export it to all over the world. So again, um, we are victims 
of our political systems. That's not a very uh, happy uh, ending for this, but uh, unfortunately, I think that's the reality we live in. Well, I'm sure that's right. And obviously, it gives us an incentive to have better political <laughs> systems. So hopefully, that will be in our future. Um, but I want to say thanks for today's episode. I want to thank Wang Feng for sharing his insights about world demographic developments, especially those in China. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.